This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of May 19th, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 131 of Defender Radio. For nearly 80 years, the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals has tried to find ways to stop the use of fur and end trapping. Many of our traditional methods, letter writing, campaigning, advertising, and others, they've all worked well in some areas, but our coexistence program has yielded the greatest results. The concept of coexistence really stems from understanding the wildlife in an ecosystem and finding steps that can help prevent conflict. This week, we're hearing from two experts. First up is Adrian Nelson, my colleague at APFA, who is also our Urban Wildlife Conflict Manager. For the last few years, Adrian has headed up our Living with Wildlife Beavers campaign to great success, and he'll be sharing how the program works and what you can do to get involved. Following Adrian will be Sarah Dubois, Chief Scientific Officer at the BCSPCA, who will discuss a recent study out of Africa, illustrating that not only is coexistence better for the environment and animals, but better for the economy. Beavers are the brunt of our jokes, our national animal, and often portrayed as tree-devastating rodents. They also happen to be a keystone species that holds the future to Canada's environment. As nature's engineers, beavers create habitats that support endangered species across the country, encourage songbird populations, and even clean water runoff from farms. Too often, their damming, which can result in flooding or infrastructure damage, leads to the cruel trapping and deaths of hundreds of beaver families. But when my friend and colleague Adrian Nelson gets on the case, other options are available. Adrian recently joined me to talk about APFA's Living with Wildlife Beavers campaign and our upcoming adventure across Ontario. Uh, let's start out at the beginning. How did the program develop for APFA? Uh, the program actually developed long before I was there. Um, this program developed sort of back in the days of, of George and Bunty uh, when there was quite a few communities here locally that were trapping and killing beavers uh, quite regularly. Um, and obviously this sort of upset the association at the time. And they went out and started to look for alternatives. And there were some individuals out of the States that were doing these flow devices, these beaver deceivers and pond levelers and things like that. And, uh, you know, they, they started to promote those devices up here. Um, unfortunately at the time we weren't able to really get in and, and do these devices ourselves. So when I came on board, we started implementing these devices into communities here locally, um, and it just kind of caught on like wildfire. We've been all across Canada now uh, installing beaver flow devices. Uh, what what kind of reaction has there been to the implementation of the devices? I mean, you go in, and I know a lot of people are kind of naysayers about the whole bits, but uh, once they're actually in, what kind of reaction do you get? You know what, it's, there's kind of a, a three-phase reaction that I get when I go into most municipalities. Uh, first, it's this, well, I don't see these things working. You don't understand our beavers here. You know, this is nothing more than a pipe and some fence. You know, I, I don't see this. And then as I'm building it and explaining it, I usually get the, 
Well, I can see the logic behind this, but I don't see it working here. I don't see how this is going to work. And by the end of it, it's usually, you know, I think these could really do the trick. Uh, <laughs> it's quite neat. And then we usually, you know, I'll usually hear a year or two later. Sometimes I won't even hear. I'll, you know, be wandering back through a municipality for another reason, and, and I'll see flow devices all over the place that they've just kind of constructed on their own, uh, which is great. To, you know, that's really the, the, the whole um, goal of the program is to empower other people on how to build these so that they can do the themselves and they can save money and, and save our environment and save beavers at the same time. And uh, can you give us the, the quick sort of overhead view of how all of these things work? Well, basically we have two devices sort of that we put in on a regular basis. We have what's called an exclusion fence and a pond leveler. Um, the exclusion fence really is used in culverts and things like that where we basically need to prevent the beaver from accessing the, the culvert. And it's more or less a glorified fence that goes in front of the culvert and keeps the beaver out. Um, now, there's some sort of technical things behind it that make it work, um, but it really is just a glorified fence. And with the pond leveler, it's really just a pipe that goes through the the um, uh, the beaver dam and allows water to come through the beaver dam. Um, again, there's you know some little tricks that we use on, on these devices to to keep the beavers from messing with them. But it really is nothing more than a pipe that allows water to flow through and a fence to keep beavers out from where we want them. Why don't we just relocate them? Why isn't that the first step that we take when dealing with these issues? Relocation isn't usually a great option. Um, for one, the the beaver is there for a particular reason. They're there either for a food source, uh, a good habitat, um, whatever it is. Until we address that underlying issue, we're going to continue to have more beavers coming in. So it's really just an endless cycle of, of relocating beavers. Uh, the other thing, too, is that when beavers move into a new area, uh, that's when we tend to see a lot of the large trees starting to go down. Um, beavers want to set up a large dam. They want to set up a large lodge. Um, and they need a lot of material in order to do that. And that's generally when we see a lot of that uh, big destruction happening. As the colony gets established, they don't have the need for that big material as much anymore. Um, and quite happily will sustain themselves on that new growth that's coming in, um, the roots, berries, things like that, rather than going after these old big dead trees. Um, so by removing those beavers constantly, we're inviting new beavers to come in and do their renos and drop more big trees, and we end up getting more destruction this way, um, and we, we really don't solve the problem. We're just continuing this, this endless cycle. Okay, and we're going to be, uh, you and I are going to be touring southern Ontario up to northern Ontario uh, in the coming weeks. We're actually going to be going to a few municipalities. Uh, why don't you tell everybody a bit about what this trip is going to involve for us? Yeah, this is a really unique trip. It's a, it's a bit of a whirlwind trip for us. Um, we're hitting uh, quite a few different municipalities on this. Uh, and we're going to be doing a combination of things. We've got some municipalities that are, are already on board. They're, they're very eager to put these flow devices in place. So we're going to be doing some staff training to show these municipalities how to build them and how to implement them. Um, and we've got other municipalities that have never really heard about them that much or have heard about them in a very limited sense. So they want a little more information. They want us to come out and, and teach them about these devices, why they work, uh, and, and then start to look at how they can implement these in their own community. 
So it's going to be really unique. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, it's it's going to be a lot of work, uh, but it's really neat to get out and be able to visit so many communities at once and be able to spread this message and, and provide real non-lethal alternatives that work. One of the things we often deal with, uh, you and I both, is people saying, how can I get involved? Now, for something like this, it's going to be a lot of meetings and a lot of sort of site visits and things like that for you and I. So how can our volunteers and supporters and the listeners of this program get involved in our work on this Beaver campaign? Well, obviously, you know, we're, we're always in need of support. We're always in need of financial support in order to get these campaigns running, um, to pay for materials, uh, pay for travel expenses so that we can talk to these municipalities. Um, but more so than that, too, we just, we need to spread the word out to every community across Canada that there are these alternatives. Um, and I think it's very important that people ask their city what their beaver management plan is, what do they do for beavers in their town, and see if they can find a city staff person or a, or a council member that's eager to listen to some of these alternatives uh, and, and present some of these alternatives to them. Um, everything is available, you know, obviously on our website at forbeardefenders.com, um, and, and they can present that material to their own city uh, and see if we can get these devices in there. Find out more about our beaver campaign and how you can donate to help us at FurBearDefenders.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. BearSmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At BearSmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at BearSmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada... We're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. This is Defender Radio. We all know that the fur industry is responsible for millions of deaths of fur-bearing animals every year. 
but they are not the sole culprits. Throughout the world, farmers and ranchers kill predatory and quote-unquote nuisance animals to protect their livestock, crops, and lands. But there are better methods available. In a recent study, scientists showed that it is actually economically beneficial to use non-lethal methods as opposed to lethal methods in preventing such conflict. Why this study matters and what it could mean for Canada was talked about by Sarah Dubois, Chief Scientific Officer at the BCSPCA, who recently joined us. So why don't we start, just tell me a bit about, um, from your perspective as a scientist, what this study uh, indicates to you. Well, this is a really interesting study and one that's long overdue, the first of its kind to really look comprehensively over a period of years at the cost-benefit analysis of using non-lethal versus lethal methods with a bit of a control at a specific location and studying 11 farms over these three years. So it's really exciting and I'm happy to see that this has finally been published. All right, and the the very quick review of this paper shows that the uh, uh, the study authors have determined that it is not only more cost efficient to use non-lethal human wildlife conflict mitigation, but it can also create economic benefits. Yes. So in this area, this is the Eastern Cape of South Africa, and they do a lot of lethal programs encouraged and you know supported by government and wildlife management practices there of things like caracals, which are like wild cats, and also of jackals, like little wild dogs that take sheep farming primarily um, is the livestock in that area. So for generations and generations, lethal methods have been the way they use either trapping or hunting techniques, and these can be quite expensive over time, but they also, the cost you have to factor in here is the cost of losing your lambs and your sheep. And so they looked at that total cost summary versus the cost of implementing non-lethal methods like guardian dogs or using net protectors and looked at the implementation costs as well as the maintenance costs. And not only was the initial value of the, you know, payback very quickly for, for putting up front. But over time, they lost less and less animals, like 70% of the depredation effects were gone. And so farmers were saving a lot more money over time, not just um, with, you know, implementing these, these methods. So it's very exciting information. Well, and this is the kind of thing that while it's not exact to other jurisdictions, we can most likely extrapolate that similar results can be found in the United States and in Canada. Um, and talking with someone like Louise Leibenberg of the Grazier, who, uh, who I know you've met and we have hosted on our website through some video presentations. Uh, and she talks about very similar actions, how you spend a little bit of money here and it saves you a lot of money in the long run. Um. Absolutely. And she's a farmer who's, you know, experiencing this every day. And it's hard for farmers to, of course, invest in this research of which is going to be the better option for them. Often they want the quick solution and they think that the lethal method is going to be that quick. And over time we see actually that in fact, no, it's actually much more costly to keep dumping money into these lethal solutions, which are also quite inhumane. Well, and I think something that should be pointed out too, that I always find interesting is that a number of mesopredators, uh, when they are persecuted, 
will actually rebound in population faster, um, everything from raccoons to coyotes. And it also can have a very huge detrimental effect on their social bonds, which can in turn lead to more predation. Absolutely. So if you think of you're removing these animals as fast as you can, well, they're repopulating the area as fast as they can and also disrupting that social balance because uh, animals are being removed and, and new animals are coming in so quickly. So, you know, this is just a, a problem that's going to perpetuate if you don't figure out how to address and actually keep these animals in their place but deter them from actually taking any of your livestock. Well, and as you've said, uh, there are a number of methods available at this point. This is not new concepts. Uh, why do you think so many people have been resistant, or maybe not resistant to some of these mitigation factors, but resistant to moving away from lethal control? Well, I think it's very traditional that, you know, sometimes it's part of a culture to hunt and trap these animals on your property and just not knowing what is going to be the, actually the most effective non-lethal method for their particular property, for their particular species of livestock, you know, not having support of, of scientists uh, or the agricultural ministries to help make that transition because, again, just putting money into it helps you, you know, think, makes you think that this problem is going to be resolved quickly. But in fact, when they finally can get the data on this, you know, very intense comprehensive study, it shows it, it's really pointless to keep putting in money into lethal controls when in fact, if you can make some changes to your practices, this is actually going to help you, your bank bottom line at the end of the day, as well as save a lot of animals' lives. Excellent. And one of the things I wanted to talk with you in particular about is the the correlation between this and the urban conflict issues that we deal with, because this study is very, very clearly based on agricultural interests. And while that can be argued to be larger than urban conflict, just in terms of cost and volume of damage, um, urban conflict obviously affects more people. Uh, just due to the densification of populations in urban centers. And as a result, I have found personally that you get a lot more people a lot more scared and worked up when there's conflict in an urban area, uh, while farmers uh, are more frustrated. Um, people in a city get scared when there's conflict with a coyote or conflict even uh, with a raccoon. There was an issue of that not long ago in Vancouver. So how can we take the information from a study like this and apply it to the setting of an urban environment? Well, if you look at the study, of course, it was controlled. These were very specific farms. There was boundaries to these areas. They were measuring uh, not only the cost input, but the output. So it was a controlled study. It's very, very difficult to do in an urban setting, you know, to actually try to address how many animals are coming into a city or coming onto the boundaries of that city. So launching a, a project study similar to this in the city to prove that non-lethal methods are going to be also less um, cost, costly is going to be very, very difficult to do. So I think that the principles of this study are very applicable, but it, it's just an implementation transition that we have to make. And I think, of course, like you said, farmers are much more used to seeing these animals. They know that they are perhaps going to take their sheep, but people in the city don't grow up with wildlife and don't know what potentially they're capable of, so they assume the worst. And in this case, you know, for raccoons, 
these animals have been habituated, they've been fed by people, so they have lost some fear of uh, generally the public and have showed some, you know, aggression towards dogs or people in the city. But those are really, really rare circumstances. They just happen to get a lot of media. But I think we should really take away from this study that if we continue to use methods that are lethal and removing these mesopredators from urban environments, the same effects are going to happen. Not only are we dumping a whole lot of money into a problem that we're not actually solving, but they're just going to reproduce quicker and they're just going to come back and the cycle is going to continue. So we're really not being effective in our, our wildlife management practices and it's really unethical to do something and to go to the extent of killing animals when in fact the solution is not going to work at all. I'd like to ask you, and I'm not sure if you're able to answer this, but from my uh, my knowledge of, of some creatures like uh, coyotes and raccoons, the conflict we see in urban centers largely exists because of historic landscape changes from the agricultural industry. So, for example, coyotes pushing further east um, really came about when wolves were taken away and the combination of uh, uh, raising f uh, forests. So in Ontario, we sort of had that perfect juxtaposition of fewer apex predators and a more ideal landscape for coyotes. So could we even look at this then as we need to learn from what's happening on farmlands to understand what's happening in urban centers? Because they are historically tied together that way. Absolutely, and they're all driven by the same mechanisms in biology, of course, prey cycles and um, you know habitat use. So I think to learn from a, a farming example is, is very applicable still in an urban setting, and perhaps we just can't measure it as effectively because it's distributed over a larger area in an urban area. Um, in an urban area, but I think these are really appropriate lessons to learn and to implement in our own urban wildlife management practices. My final question then is how do people like myself and many of our listeners who don't have the, um, the authority with the education that you have and as well as the positioning uh, in a large organization, how can we turn to our governments and to our farmers and say, you need to read this study or you need to learn about this? How, how do we begin that conversation to try and affect change? Well, I think there are farmers and communities who are very interested, but of course they're not going to get this information through a scientific journal. So perhaps hosting these forums where you bring together individuals who have common interests in solving the problem and discussing some of these results would be a really great lesson um, in cooperation and community consultation. You also need to get at urban planners and get them to start considering the application of these methods as well in their own urban context. To learn more about Sarah and her work, visit bcspca.ca. That's the show for this week, folks. To find out more about our guests, our coexistence campaigns, and how you can get involved, please follow the links on this week's Defender Radio blog. On behalf of APFA, this is Michael Howie, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.